This morning we come to the end of a short series where we've been considering together uh, what it means to be a communicant in a church like this. And the way in which we chose to do that was by looking together at the communicant vows uh, that, that any new communicant makes in our church life here. You'll find those vows printed on the back, well, not the back, I think it's the inside uh, back page of the bulletin. So let me flash them up on the screen here as well to remind you of the ground that we have covered so far. Two weeks ago at our communion service, we began with the first uh, of the communicant uh, vows, which is really a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And we noticed then that a communicant is an authentic believer in Jesus Christ, someone in a a real and living relationship with Jesus. The communicant says that they believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe in the Trinitarian God revealed to us in Scripture. But you'll notice that it doesn't stop there. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not just simply something that we say, I believe this. This person really knows Jesus Christ. They're committed to him. They say that Jesus is their Savior. So they've admitted their need of Jesus, and they have received the forgiveness that Jesus Christ brings. Jesus is their Savior, but He's also their Lord. They've recognized that Jesus calls people to follow Him and to serve Him. So that's the first thing that we said. A communicant is an authentic Christian. Last week, we looked together at the second vow, and we noticed that a communicant is a growing disciple of Jesus Christ. We noticed in particular that there are three core disciplines or commitments uh, that that a communicant uh, commits themselves to. We gather together for worship because that's where we find encouragement in our walk with Jesus Christ. We read God's Word together and we expect uh, to, to learn from God in His Word. We pray together because we want to enter into a lifelong conversation with Jesus Christ. We were only able to give each of those huge areas just a couple of moments last week, but I hope they acted at least as a reminder to you of some of those core commitments of the life of discipleship. This morning, I'm going to spend a few moments dealing with the last couple of vows. So let's have a quick look at them before we get stuck into them. Here's the third one. Do you promise to give a fitting proportion of your time, talents, and money for Christ's work in the world? And then the fourth one. Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to confess Christ openly, to serve him in your daily occupations, and to walk in his ways all the days of your life? It looks like an awful lot of material, particularly at the pace I was going at the last couple of weeks. But but believe me, I hope I can deal with this pretty concisely. The third vow contains two main elements. The first one is to do with the giving of our time and our talents. And logic suggests that those two actually go together. Think about it for a second. You can't give your time without offering your talents. There's no point in somebody coming to me and saying, Christoph, I want to give my time to the church. And I'll ask him, well, what do you want to do? Oh, oh, nothing. I just want to give my time. I don't want to use my talents. I just want to 
do nothing. That wouldn't make an awful lot of sense. And there's no point equally in a person saying, you know, there's, there's so many things I could do in the church. I've got loads of gifts, lots of talent that I could offer. And I'd say, well, well let's talk about that. When are you going to do that? Oh, oh I can't. Uh, I've no time. So I'm going to treat that, those two, what look like two different things, as, as one together. The giving of our time and our talents to serve in the church. The second element, the giving of our money, is a, is a big area for Christian living. It's a very significant one, but it's one that I'm not going to deal with today. And the reason for that is I'm going to begin a short series next week um, where, where I'm going to be looking at what God's Word teaches about, about money. Folks, with your permission, I'm going to stop for a moment and just pray that um, the folks who are uh, looking after, I think it's maybe Robin who's gone out, that, that God is with them and, and guiding them. So let's pray. Father God, we know that our lives are in your hands. And we pray for Robin just now. We pray that you'd watch over him and keep him. We pray for those who have gone to to look after him just now and to help him, uh, give them wisdom, guide them to the right ways of, of helping Robin. Lord, we entrust him into your care. Amen. I've been looking there for the last couple of seconds at how we're going to split up this third vow and deal with it. Once we've dealt with that for a moment, I'm going to to go back to that that fourth vow. In summary, it deals with how you serve Christ by, by sharing your faith in the world wherever Christ has placed you. So let's, let's deal quickly with, with the third vow, this commitment to give a fitting proportion of our time and talents for God's work in the world. The Bible says that this is why we were created. We were created to do good works. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you'll see the words there on the screen, God wants, God is at work in this world, the Bible teaches And God's desire for each one of us is that we join him in the work that he's doing. So we're called to serve in the church as we serve brothers and sisters in Christ here, but also to serve outside the church as we take the good news of Jesus, as we live out the acts, the kinds of acts that Jesus did, and we do those in our community. We serve individually, but also we serve together as a church. In God's kingdom, we're taught that there's work for each person to do. Again in Ephesians, but now in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul teaches that each one has been given grace as Christ apportioned it. If you read on in that passage, it, it tells us there in particular that Jesus chose some people to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be preachers and teachers. And it tells us why he did that. It's so that the body of Christ might be built up. This is really important. What this verse means in that chunk of Ephesians, this part of the Bible's teaching, is that 
No one here this morning has more gifts than God wants them to have. And no one has less. Each one has what Jesus has given them. You know, talents and abilities, gifts, that can be quite divisive sometimes when we dwell on it because we might think, well, it's divisive for all sorts of reasons. We might feel superior. We might imagine ourselves to be wonderfully gifted and look down on others who who are less so. Or we might have an inferiority complex. We might look around and say, oh, I wish, I wish I was like her. I wish I had more of what he has. But here we're being told, leave that behind. Each one of us has what Christ wants us to have by way of, of gifts and his call in our lives. So our job then is simply to discover what our gifts are, what it is that Christ has called us to do, and then when we discover them, to use them, to do what we can to build up the church. Serving God isn't limited to the church. I'm a bit nervous here as I talk about serving God that, that you're going you're gonna to come to too small a conclusion about this, that it's all to do with doing stuff in the church. No way. Absolutely not. We serve God in every single aspect and in every part of our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, Paul says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Paul reckons we can do absolutely everything that we do for God's glory. Just this week, I got an email to tell me which leg of the marathon relay I'm going to be running in. Um, a bit nervous about that, but never mind. There, there are a few of the guys here in the church who try to do a wee bit of running. And one of the guys who, who runs sent me an email recently where a Christian writer had made a case for how you can run or, or jog to the glory of God. He, he's picking up on this, this idea here that we can do everything to the glory of God. He made, he made three or four different points, and I just want to share them with you to give you some idea of how we can live the whole of our lives for God's glory. The writer says, that firstly, that exercising and keeping the, the body healthy makes us grateful to God for that gift of health and physical well-being. So that way we bring glory to God. We ourselves end up grateful. He says when we keep our bodies healthy and strong, as much as that's under our control, we keep ourselves useful. We're able to do more in Christ's service if we're fit and healthy and strong than we could if we had gone into physical decline. He then says even the ways in which we exercise can give glory to God. For example, the time that I choose to exercise, say I'm part of a family. If I choose to exercise at a time that's going to dump on someone else in the family, in terms of looking after the kids or other household responsibilities, does that give glory to God? No, but, but it could. If I was very thoughtful about how I chose to, to exercise and, and the demands I was making on other people, Exercise itself, this guy says, could end up being a ministry. He said you could, you could phone somebody who, 
who might enjoy the encouragement of going out and being involved in something disciplined like a bit of exercise. I thought about that for a second and I thought, actually, I could do that because anybody who ran with me would be encouraged. They would realize how fit they are and how well they are by comparison. But I just thought it was interesting, this guy making the point that very ordinary, everyday things, our our work, how we live at home, how, how we spend our leisure time, all those things we can do to the glory of God. I think he's right. Another important aspect of all of this is that we can do it wherever we are. I've already made the point, I'm not, I'm not thinking of dragging people more and more into the church. Uh, we, can, we can do this, and we have to do it really, wherever God has already called us. This is a, a passage where Paul's talking quite specifically about your workplace. And it's the last sentence there that I find particularly interesting. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. In a passage where Paul's talking about living with your boss, he says, actually, the, the man or the woman who's head of your department or whatever, they only appear to be your boss. If you're in Jesus Christ, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. And that's brilliant news, particularly if your boss is a real nightmare. Because it means that you can find a way of working well and with integrity, knowing that ultimately everything that you do, you do for the glory of God and because Jesus Christ is your boss. I don't want to be naive about your workplace. Workplaces are hard hard places often. They're places where there's a lot of um, backbiting. Places where where maybe cynicism is the whole atmosphere. Everybody's given off all the time about what's going on in work. Those become hard places to live well for Christ. But if we can remember this, that, that Christ is our boss and that he goes before us, then maybe we can we can serve well even in difficult times. Maybe you think, Christoph, that's all very well, but you don't know my workplace. Some of the guys in the Bible had really difficult and unusual workplaces, if you think about it. Think about Joseph. He ends up in prison in Egypt, and then finally he ends up working in the court of pagan Pharaoh. Pharaoh's probably the most powerful guy in the world at the time, and he's, he's pagan. He doesn't know God. But Joseph's working right beside him. He's his right-hand man. Or think about Daniel. Daniel ends up in a similar role. He ends up in the, in the court, a real high-profile member of, of the cabinet of Nebuchadnezzar, another pagan ruler. Or think about Esther. Esther ends up basically in the harem of, of the king of her time, a Persian king. And yet she looks for ways to live faithfully and for God in that context. The Bible isn't naive about this. The Bible teaches that wherever we are, we can live for God's glory. Very, very quickly, I do want to talk for a second about serving in the church. I've talked there for a bit to, to redress the balance about doing everything for God's glory, being for God's glory in our workplaces. What about in the church? Well, I'm going to be upfront and honest with you here. Any church of the size of this needs an awful lot of people 
to play their part for it to function well. Did a quick exercise before coming out this morning. Looked at a few rotas that we use to get us through Sunday morning worship. And I added them together to see how many people are involved from week to week in delivering Sunday worship. They're not involved every week, but how many people play their part? I nearly died when I saw the answer, and I'm sure you'll be surprised. 120 people or thereabouts play their part to, to facilitate Sunday worship here. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that just simply to let you know that that's, that's what's required for children to be looked after in the Sunday school, for uh, a welcome team to exist, for musicians to play their part, for a crash. And I suppose I simply want to say, if you hear an announcement from time to time where we seem to be asking for help, and you sit there thinking, goodness, they never stop asking for help in here. We don't ask just for the sake of it. We ask because there's work needing done. And we need more people to help with it. So that's just a, an honest reflection on where we're at. Uh, by the way, there's just a wonderful flip side to that. We have 120 roles or so on our rotas just to get through Sunday worship. As far as I know, they're all full. That's how many people are serving and playing their part here in church life. So thank you for that. Every follower of Jesus Christ ought to be asking themselves where they can get involved. If you're a communicant member of a church, you've promised to play your part. So I'm, I'm simply flagging up for you those commitments that you've made, and I'm asking you to take those seriously. In a famous passage in Romans 12, the one that Paul read for us earlier, um, Paul Sorry, I've got my Paul's mixed up there. Yes, I'm right about that. Paul read for us, but the Apostle Paul tells us how important it is that each person plays their part. Sorry, I think the, the, the writing here gets a little bit smaller. But it's brilliant because Paul talks about loads of different things that different people like doing. They're quite different if you have a look at that list. He says you're not all supposed to be the same. You're supposed to be different. And if all the different people play properly the, the different role that God has given them, then that makes for a healthy and a strong church. If some of the guys with a particular gift don't play their part, then the church is impoverished and weaker in that particular area. This is something that we as a church need to keep working on as we grow, as new members join us, as new ministries start. We, we want to be sure that we can offer every single person a, a meaningful area of service and, and one that fits in with where God has gifted them. So bear with us as we try to do that. I'm going to spend a wee bit less time just now thinking with you about the, the last of our communicant vows and the issue in particular which it flags up, which is sharing your faith uh, a very important aspect of life with Jesus Christ. I've done a lot of teaching about evangelism, particularly in the autumn of, not of 2007, but 2006, with a major series then. I'm not going to, to reinvent the wheel here this morning, but I'm going to recap very, very quickly on some of the things that we said then. Why do we share our faith? 
Well, we share our faith because of Christ's example. This is what Jesus did. The gospel writers all agree that he went out and he preached the good news of the kingdom. And he told his disciples to do the same. If, if we want to do what Jesus did, then we, we verbally share faith. We also do it because of Christ's concern. You know, in Luke chapter 19, we're told of a time where Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus looks at the world and he sees people who are lost. And he wants them found. That's where his heart lies. So we join him in that as we follow him. Jesus' great commission, this is probably the best known passage of all on why we share our faith. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is our job description for life. To go and to call other people to follow Jesus Christ. I tried to think about why we maybe don't take this stuff seriously. We fail to take seriously the realities of heaven and hell. I wonder if you agree with me about that. Is there a way of being the church nowadays? Do we use sophisticated language, euphemisms here and there, that, that mean that we end up ignoring the straight teaching of God's Word and of Jesus that heaven and hell are realities. Jesus talked about hell. And the reason he talked about it was because he loved people so much. He talked about hell because he didn't want people to go there. I wonder if we just need to be careful that we don't lose this. That we recover a biblical and a Jesus-like understanding of the ultimate and eternal destiny of human beings. There's another reason why we, we find it hard sometimes to talk about, about these things, to share Jesus. We fear embarrassment, and we fear the consequences. We live in a time when it's not all that socially acceptable to tell people that they, they need to know Jesus Christ, that they need a Savior that Jesus must be their Lord. We live in a time when we'd rather maybe just keep that quieter. But Jesus says a, a very powerful thing in these passages, this passage in Luke 12. He says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before men will also be disowned before the angels of God. Folks, I don't think that Jesus expects us all to be like Franklin Graham, to preach to crowds. We're not even all extroverts in our personality, so I'm not sure that this is something, that verbal evangelism is something that will dominate each one of our lives. But I do think this. I think that if we're, if we're honestly embarrassed to take the name of Jesus in the small ways and at those times when we're called to, I think, I think there's an issue there that we need to address. I think that's what Jesus is teaching in these verses. 
We need to work out why that is. What is it that we fear so much that we won't admit the name of our Lord and Savior, even in small ways? I want to spend the last moment here just on how to share our faith. And I think you'll find some encouragement here because the biblical answer to that question is we share our faith in all sorts of ways. And we're already doing it in in many ways. So the first way in which we share our faith is by our presence. Simply being a visible Christian person is a way of demonstrating Christ to the world. In those verses in Matthew chapter 5, you probably know them, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And by that, he simply means you can be the flavor of God in this world. You, You shine for Jesus in a dark place. You do that simply by existing. So simply by our presence, we can live for Jesus. By keeping non-Christian friendships, I don't know if you remember one of the sermons I preached in the series on evangelism. We looked at Matthew the tax collector, a guy who was friends with all the wrong sorts of people. And in this brilliant passage in Matthew chapter 9, he follows Jesus, and then the next thing that happens is that Matthew has a party for all of his mates, and he invites Jesus along. And there's a wonderful thing going on in this passage where Matthew doesn't turn his back on his mates who don't know Jesus. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to stick with these guys, and I'm going to bring Jesus to meet them. I'm talking to those of you who still have non-Christian friends. Hang on to them. Stick with them. Don't be so drawn into the church and Christian subculture that you lose the very people whom Christ is calling you to reach. And for those of us who have lost contact with Christian pe- non-Christian people, you probably have the contacts in your workplace, um, in your neighborhood. Let's begin to prioritize those again if we can. So simply being in the company of non-Christian people, learning to answer the questions that your life provokes, in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're encouraged, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. The idea is that if Christian people really share life with non-Christian people, then the differences begin to provoke questions. Questions, hopefully, in a positive way, where your colleague or your neighbor will say, you know, why is it that you spend your money in that particular way? Why is it that your time, you deal with it in that way? Why is it that the people and relationships are so central in your life? When people ask those questions, we need to be ready to give an answer to the questions that they're asking. I've already said, most of us, I think only a small proportion of us are verbal evangelists. But there's one thing that we can do, and that's invite other people to places where they can hear the gospel. I've flagged up for you that passage there in John chapter 1. It's brilliant. Let me read a couple of the verses there. We're told simply that Andrew followed Jesus, and then it goes on. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah and bring him to Jesus. 
So you're not a preacher. So you're not sure that you have the words to explain the gospel to other people. Then invite them to places where where other people can. It might be inviting them here to church. It might be inviting them to an Alpha or a Christianity Explored course. Look for those places where you can invite people that they might find Jesus. And the last thing that we can do, we can speak the gospel ourselves. I want to be realistic about this. I I would imagine that for most of us, we feel ill-equipped for that. We don't know how to do it. Let me offer you a couple of very simple suggestions. One's kind of like a testimonial, where you talk about your own experience. It's something that, that we read in Acts, in the account there. Paul, in that passage, just tells his story of how he found Jesus. So you begin by telling people what their life was like before you found Jesus. Then you tell them of, of what it was that happened. Whether you heard the gospel message preached, whether you spoke with a Christian friend, something happened where you found Christ, you share that. And then you share openly and honestly what your life has been like since. It's a very real, a very down-to-earth, but a very powerful way to share what Christian faith means with another person. There's another thing that you could do where you could, you could build up in your own mind a simple framework of some key Bible verses that you could remember and just share with people. This one is quite well known. This is called the Romans Road to some people. A few key verses in Romans. Romans 3.23, it flags up for every person the problem, their need of Jesus. In Romans 6.23, Jesus is shown to be the answer. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 10.13, our response, how do we respond to this? Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Folks, I'm not, I'm not being prescriptive here. This is more illustrative than prescriptive. I'm showing that there are things that we can do, just simple ways in which we can prepare ourselves to be better able to share the message of Jesus Christ. That was a bit of a gallop. And as we finish here this morning, and as we finish this series, I want to remind you what I said last week about these communicant vows that we have been looking at together. Don't sit there and think of these as unobtainable standards. If you do that, then I have failed you. And and we as a church have failed you in, in, in teaching what this is all about. Don't imagine that if you've, if you've missed some of these commitments, if you've, if you've failed to meet the mark, that you've failed, that you're somehow dropped from the team, that you've been shown the red card and you're out of the game. I want you to notice instead what the last vow says. Do you promise, depending on the grace of God, and then it goes on. I think that should be in each of the four vows. Everything that we've been talking about here these last weeks, it's all dependent on the grace of God. None of us can make promises 
and keep our commitments on our own. But depending on the grace of God, we can. If, if we open our lives to God's Holy Spirit, if we recognize that He wants to help us with this, we'll not go too far wrong. Can I encourage you, as I finish here this morning, don't see these communicant vows as some sort of piece of church furniture, some ecclesiastical set piece, a box to tick. Remember what we're about here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, because we're always about the same thing. We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And look at those vows printed there for you on the back page of the bulletin. And recognize them simply as the kinds of commitments that a follower of Jesus Christ would want to make. Enter into all of this as a person who's still learning, but who now sees clearly the direction they want to go, the life that they want to live, the lifestyle they aspire to. Let me offer our communicant vows to you in that regard. We're disciples of Jesus Christ, committing ourselves to him. Let's pray.